Well, this morning we want to just focus on a couple of verses. And we're working from uh, Luke's record, Luke 5, um, verse 36. He spake also a parable unto them, No man puts a piece of new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new makes a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agrees not with the old. And no man puts new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. Now, this occurs also in Matthew 9 and in Mark 2. And it's the same sort of uh, idea. Just Luke adds a sort of extra point here that he talks about somebody cutting up a new garment to get a piece of uh, uh, material out of the new garment and then adding it onto the old one to patch it up. So the whole thing is even more bizarre. I mean, who would, uh, who would think of doing that? So there's, however, a context here. And we know when we study scripture, we've got to, got to look at the context. And the first thing we notice about the context is in verse 29, that Levi makes him a great feast in his own house. Now, Levi was presumably a... Um, a priest from a priestly family because he has the name, name Levi but he's a publican, verse 27 he's a, a tax collector so this guy had come a pretty long way from being a priest, a Jewish priest to becoming a pro-Roman tax collector who was despised by the rest of the Jews and that's an interesting context because it's someone who's come from the old way of doing things as a, as a priest and he's now got involved with the, the new covenant of Jesus. Now, on one level, it seems pretty obvious what's being said here, that you can't mix the old covenant with the new covenant. Uh, and that is, of course, the, the point. But the immediate context also in verse 33 is that <clears throat> they're talking about the disciples of John, who it seems were continuing to hold on to a lot of the old covenant ideas that they fast often, etc. Whereas the disciples of Jesus weren't like that. So that's the, that's the context of people who are mixing the old covenant with, with the new covenant. And just in passing, this whole conversation takes place at a feast, because verse 29, they're having a great feast in Levi's house. And the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, why are you eating <coughs> with publicans and sinners? Now, the story that Jesus tells uses the ideas of wine, new wine and old wine, and a garment. And you remember from the, uh, the other parable of Jesus about the wedding garment, that if you went to a real big feast at someone's house, you were given a garment. So, Jesus is telling this story in the context of sitting there, maybe having just been given a garment for the feast, and with wine, I, I guess, being served. And on a simple level, let's just take the point that there he is, <clears throat> using whatever is around him to make a point. Now that, I think, is the essence of spirituality. That as we go through our secular lives, we use the things that we encounter in secular life. Be it being given a garment to go to a feast, be it wine or new wine that's being poured out to us, and we take a lesson from that and we try to see something spiritual in all that is around us, even in the midst of secular life. Anyway, this um, <clears throat> new cloth that uh, he talks about being put on the, uh, the old garment that's, that's torn, 
presumably the first time it was washed, the new unwashed piece of cloth would, would shrink. And so it would tear and take away from the old garment and the, the rent would be made worse. And so what he's saying is that if you mix the old and the new, there is a tragic wastage, absolutely tragic wastage all around. The, the new is spoiled because this person has cut out something from the new garment and the old is also not patched up. Now, in the, the parables of Jesus, very often, we're sort of coasting along in understanding them, thinking, yes, yes, I understand this, this, this is obvious. That's bizarre to do that. Of course that's not the right thing to do. You know, who would think of doing this? Nobody. So we're all sort of quite happy there, yes, I understand this parable. And then there is a, a sort of a sting in the tail, that the whole thing suddenly becomes not so easy to understand in practice. It's the same with the parable of the Good Samaritan. We read it and we think, yeah, yeah, I understand this. And then, you know, <laughs> we understand that we actually are the, the wounded man. And we understand that we have got to also act like the, uh, the Samaritan, that we are the despised and the rejected, that we are not the acceptable people in society, and that we have got to do something radical to show the love of Christ in this world. And that is not so easy. And it's the same with us. We might say, yeah, this is so easy to understand. How bizarre. Whoever would think of doing that? But the question is, who would think of doing it? You do. We do. We all do. Because Jesus concludes by saying that no one who's drunk old wine immediately wants the new, because he said the old is better. In other words, Jesus is saying that there is a conservatism in human nature. And I think he's trying to apologise, really, in a very gracious way, for the disciples of John. He's sort of saying, well, yes, they're not immediately going to get into my new covenant, because they're only human. And I, I think that's very gracious. And we can take a, a lesson from that ourselves, of not making excuses for people, but on the other hand, being gracious to their spiritual immaturity. Uh, I see that verse 39 as, as grace itself. Now, we might think that we are liberal. I used to think that I was a liberal because I compared myself with other people and not with Jesus. But compared to my, my family, compared to the sort of matrix in which I grew up, I was a liberal. But, then as I got older, I realised that really I'm very conservative. And actually we are all conservative. All of us are conservative. And we don't like change. The old and the familiar is always better. So, <clears throat> Jesus brings out the, the tragedy that will happen if we don't completely change, that in fact if we don't radically change, if we don't stretch like these wineskins have to stretch to take the new wine, because it was still fermenting, then we are going to be destroyed. We have to change radically, and not just on a surface level. And he, he talks uh, about this new garment, and <clears throat> the new garment is clearly the... Uh, the, the, uh, the garment of, of Jesus. And we, we're familiar with that idea from Isaiah, where we read about the, the garment of Jesus, and Revelation 19, verse 8, that the, the white linen of the saints is their righteousness, which has been given them by Jesus. 
So then, the new garment that we have to put on is the idea that we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. That we are counted as if we are righteous, not by our own works, which Isaiah says are as filthy rags, but totally covered in him. But we don't like that. We don't like that. We like to sometimes believe that, but in practice, go along with sort of bodging up the job, mixing a bit of that new covenant stuff with our old way of believing. But if we do that, then we actually will destroy ourselves, and we will destroy that beautiful garment that has been given us. Now, in the first context, of course, it's talking about the the righteousness that comes from the law, and the idea of the Mosaic system as an old garment. Uh, We got it in the New Testament in Hebrews 1, verse 11, where we're told that 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 whole Mosaic system was like an old garment that shall perish. And that's the same word here in Luke 5, 37, same Greek word, the bottles shall perish. So that system of justification by, or attempted justification by obedience to law was the old garment that that was finished. And unless we are going to totally accept the gift of righteousness that is in Jesus, this will be our tragic end. That's what Jesus is teaching. Now the idea of a, a garment that is rent or unrent you've actually got these same Greek words occurring in the record of the the crucifixion of Jesus in John 19, verse 24, where the soldiers say, let's not rend his garment. So, in a sense, to try to rend his garment by cutting it up, taking a bit of it and putting upon our old garment, that is really a re-crucifixion of Jesus. That's as horrible as if the, the soldiers had said, Okay, well this is his garment, let's rend it. Who's going to have what part? It would have been so wrong and awful. But that is what we're doing. If we are going to mix our own self-righteousness with the righteousness of Jesus. Now it all sounds so simple, but it really isn't. Because in practice, people find this so difficult. I mean, if I were to ask you, do you believe that if the Lord comes at this moment, you will be saved? I mean, I I put my hand up and say, yes, I do believe that. But I know there are many who will hum and ha and say, well, I don't know. I have this weakness. I have that that, that, uh, point of failure in my life, in my character. Well, I hope so. We'll wait and see. These are the sort of things I hear when I ask people that question. Hey, you. Do you believe that if Jesus comes back right now, you're going to be saved? Now, whilst we're in that mentality, we are not feeling ourselves as covered with the righteousness of Jesus. Now, here we're hitting at a very hard point. Do you believe that you will be saved? Because you know as well as I do that if we put our hand up and say, yes, sir, yes, I do, this has colossal implications. All joy and peace should be bursting forth in our lives that I, a sinner, am clothed with the, the, the garment, the new garment of Jesus and I will not rend it I will not mix the two things together now, thinking a bit more about this new garment 
The word for new that's used in Matthew 9.16, Mark 2.21 is actually a bit different to the one that's here in Luke 5. And the one that's uh, used in those other records literally means something that has not been carded. A, that is not knapto. A knapto. Not carded. Now, when material is, uh, is made and made into a garment, it has to be finished. That is, it has to be combed so that the fibres are aligned and that's what gives it strength and a smoother, sort of more finished kind of appearance. So the new garment is actually unfinished. It's not actually carded. Now, why? That, that seems a very strange idea. In what sense, then, is the new covenant, the new garment, something that is not actually completed? And I, I've thought a, a bit about this. And it seems to me that, yes, that makes sense. Because, taking the analogy of the, uh, the new wine being put into new bottles, the new wine was fermenting. It was bubbling away, very active. But it wasn't finished. The fermentation had not finished. That's why the, the wineskins had to be stretchable. Because it was not finished. It was a work in progress. And so there is an open-ended element to the way in which God works with people. There is an open-ended element to the New Covenant. Even in the Old Testament, we see how prophecy was very often conditional. Even the intended timing of Christ's return, it seems, has changed, and may yet change. It's dependent upon a load of factors. As I see it, it's dependent upon the, the free repentance of Israel. When the gospel goes into all the world, then shall the end come. Remember, God's telling Nineveh in 40 days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. But it wasn't, because they repented. God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy Israel and make of you a greater nation. Oh no, God, don't do that. Okay, so God changes. In response to human repentance and response to prayer. So there is something very open-ended and very dynamic. This is the, the work of the Spirit. Now, I don't mean, you know, sort of jack, in, jack out of the box and uh, so-called miracles and stuff like that. I'm not talking about miraculous gifts. I'm talking about the work of the Spirit in our lives through the New Covenant. That this is very dynamic. <clears throat> and it's something that is ongoing and moving. It's the wine that is not finished fermenting. It is the uncarded garment. Which, I mean, it's absolutely crazy to take that kind of material to, to patch up a, a rent in an old garment. The whole thing just does not make any sense to do that. But, paradoxically, religious people, the kinds of people who get involved in religion, and that's you, and that's me, we tend to be, we tend to be very unusually conservative. And I've said that human nature is conservative anyway, that there is, I think, ultimately no such thing as a liberal. We're all conservatives. And we, as religious people, are particularly prone to that desire for the old and familiar, to establish traditions, to seek stability from having those traditions. Whereas the activity of the Lord Jesus under the New Covenant is absolutely dynamic and is ongoing and moving onwards. And when we refuse to accept that, we end up broken. 
And this is what's happened in so many people's lives. It's what's happened in communities and ecclesias, churches, groups of, of people, of churches, etc. It's happened so many times. And it's still happening. Where somebody has to realise that actually, no, God is moving on. I remember when I first came to this part of the world, when it was still in the Soviet Union. I'm going back now 20 years. People, in all seriousness, told me, you shouldn't be doing that. The Russians are the enemies of, of Israel. That The Russians are a bad lot. The Bible says so. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. It does not say that. It's as simple as that. The Bible does not say that Russian people are enemies of Israel, a bad lot, you shouldn't preach them. You know that, I know that. A generation ago, when my, my father was, was a young guy, going out there to, to Africa and baptising black people, no. Yeah? And people would come up to him and say, you know what, Marcus, there's old brothers and old sisters who wake up in the night crying their heart out because of what you did. Because you baptised a black guy. And this is, <laughs> this is recent history. And yet, this is totally wrong, of course, attitudes that people had. But the spirit was moving on. And the people who couldn't hack it, broke. They might blame people like, like me or, or, or us lot uh, for, for that kind of attitude and breakage, etc. But I'm sorry, this is the parable. People have very set ideas it was always done this way. We have always had this statement of faith. That must be it. You must say thee and thou in your prayers. You must read from the King James Version. Okay. But then this fellow wants to be baptised and he's illiterate. He can't read. This guy wants to be baptised and he doesn't speak English. And he doesn't even know how to look at the English alphabet. He looks at it like... You might look at a Chinese piece of writing. You don't know which way up to read it, or you, you can't even read it. But he's got to understand the, uh, the statement of faith. Though. No, no, he's got to say thee and thou in his prayers. Can't change. I remember some years ago, I had a, a visiting speaker uh, at a Bible school in, uh, in Russia, and he gave a talk about the need to use the King James Version to say thee and thou in your prayers. And I had to translate this from English, Australian English as it was, uh, in, into, into Russian. And it was just so bizarre. And I, I thought of this parable those years ago. And I thought, you know, this is someone who can't change. This is the new wine has, has come into the bottle, but this bottle is not, not changing. And I, I remember talking to that brother in his hotel room that evening, and he, he cried, and he was very angry with me. And I, now I understand why. This was the breakage in those tears that were coming down that, that brother's cheeks. And they were. There was the man who was being broken because he was resisting the work of the Spirit. That things are moving on. Things are not like we thought they were. That which is trusted and tried, as we think, and, and the solid tradition, this has stood us in good standing all these years. How many times have we heard that? This is not, in fact, what has stood us in good standing. One can only look at the, the, the broken state and fractured state of uh, many, many individual people's lives, ecclesias, groups of ecclesias, etc., to realise that actually, no, 
all these old traditions don't actually keep anything really in very good, uh, good, good order. Why? Because there is an element in the work of the Spirit, which is like a wind, Jesus says in John 3. You don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it's going to go next. Uh, and we've got that inside us. We've got the fermenting new wine inside us that's bubbling away and pushing our boundaries, like it pushes the boundaries of a new wineskin. And if we don't respond to that, it will destroy us. Now, I'm not talking here about cosmetic things, like, oh, well, the young people these days, they wear different clothes than what we used to wear when we were young, youngsters. No, I'm not talking about that sort of cosmetic stuff. The bubbling away of the new wine is absolutely radical and fundamental. It's not cosmetic. God is leading us. Now, I'm not saying that God is leading us to another gospel. Not at all. The foundation has been laid in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no question that somehow that doesn't work out, or somehow God's basic morality changes. That one minute it's, uh, it's a sin to be a homosexual, the, the next minute, ah oh, no, it's fine, it's going to be rejoicing because God gave you that gift. No, that, that's, that's not what I'm saying. God's basic morality doesn't change. His basic forgiveness, I mean, when he says, I am the Lord, I change not, in the Old Testament, don't forget how that goes on. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. This is God protesting his eternal love to Israel, saying to Israel, I will always forgive you, and I will not consume you, because I am love. Now, in that sense, both the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, let's keep that on one hand. But on the other hand, the new garment that we are asked to put on is an uncarded one, a canapter, that it's, it's unfinished. It's not finished yet. The, the wine that is put into us is not fermented yet. It's bubbling away. It's not finished it's doing its work. Now, wineskins were made of goatskin. And it's a great shame that some versions translated here bottle, because like a bottle is glass and it doesn't change. Uh, and we rather miss the point because of that. Now, if wineskins are made of goatskins, the goat is a symbol of the rejected, unclean animal, the sinners, and the power of the sheep and the goats. So it could be that Jesus is purposefully using that analogy to emphasize that we have human flesh, that we have human nature. Um, of course, the same nature that the Lord Jesus had, and whatever we say about the nature of, uh, of human beings, we say about the nature of the Lord Jesus, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, uh, and separate from sin. So then... <clears throat> We, within the weakness of our humanity, let's put it that way, our goat skin, have got this bubbly new wine poured into us. Now, the idea of fermentation is rather similar to the way that in Luke 13:21 Jesus says that his gospel is like yeast which works through flour. That it really does have a deep and radical effect upon what it comes into. And what it comes into is our goat skin, our human flesh. So this new covenant, this new wine, 
will work powerfully in us if we let it. And our skins, the life structure, if you like, that we have, has got to be prepared to accept that. You know, maybe God is calling you to move somewhere. Maybe you're isolated from other believers. Maybe you should move to where there's others. Maybe you should hear the call of the mission field. Maybe you should give something. Something small, something big, whatever. Maybe you should make a witness to that woman that you work with, to that secretary at work, to that guy you sit on the bus with two or three days a week. You always seem to see that guy on the bus. You know, we're being called to action and to being stretched. The other comment I'd make about the wineskins is that they each expanded slightly differently in response to the fermenting of that new wine. No two wineskins are identical. And that's the, the huge shame of this translation that talks about bottles. is not bottles, wineskins. So we've each been given the same new wine, the new covenant. The promise, so you, let's just go back over the new covenant. Um, new covenant was, as Paul points out, paradoxically established before the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was the, the Law of Moses, basically. And the New Covenant was based in the promises that God made to Abraham, that him and his children would live forever, here on the earth would have eternal inheritance of the land, would have the blessing, which Peter interprets as the forgiveness of sin, and would have God as their God. And that was confirmed, Paul in Romans says, when the Lord Jesus died upon the cross. And then the new covenant, as it were, came into its full operation. Now, these are basic things. That we will live forever. That we will inherit the earth. That we are blessed with all spiritual blessings that are in Christ Jesus, including forgiveness of our sins, salvation, all God's spiritual graces to us, and we have God as my God. Now, this is right back in Genesis, right at the beginning really of God forming his own distinct people. And this is the new covenant that we have been baptised into. When we were baptised, as you know, Galatians 3, 27 to 29, we became in Christ and heirs according to the promise. The promises that were made to Abraham, that set of promises that made up the, the new covenant. Now, that basic truth, the hope of God's kingdom, Salvation, forgiveness of our sins, blessing. This will expand our wineskins slightly differently. As I say, each wineskin expanded slightly differently to the one next to it. And after a period of time, it set. Uh, it, it solidified. The, the, the wineskin lost its stretchiness and it solidified. And that, of course, is a picture of how things will be in the kingdom that we will be who we have been made to be in this life by the fermenting of the new wine. Now, each person will respond to this slightly differently. And that's why there is a difference between unity and uniformity. Uniformity is not the same as unity. That is, we are not all supposed to be, as it were, singing out of the same hymn book, um, looking the same, acting the same, being identical. No. Identi being identical is not what we're 
asked to be. So then, we now are in the stage in this life of forming our shape, which will, as it were, be set in stone throughout the kingdom. And the, the power, the, the dynamic behind that is that new wine of the new covenant that's fermenting and bubbling away inside each of us. And that is why it's such a wonderful thing to bring someone else into that new covenant, to pour the new wine of the gospel into them and help them to be baptized, to accept the new covenant. And again and again I appeal to us to go out there and a witness to men and women It always is the most unlikely types, but all the same. So that they can also be like this. Now, of course, it's possible that we can take that new wine into us and be be hard to it and not respond to it. And we can be like old wineskins that can't stretch. And in that case, if we can't bend, we will break. We will we will be shattered. And the whole thing will be a tragedy. And it says, uh, 5 verse 37 of, of Luke here, the new wine will burst the bottles, shatter them, the, uh, the wineskins, uh, and be spilled. Now, spilled, you can uh, highlight that in your Bibles, because it's the same word translated shed, as in the shedding of the blood of Jesus. And you may like to look over at Luke 20 verse 20, where these Greek words occur together again. I'm sorry, not Luke 20, verse 20. Luke 22, verse 20. My apologies. Luke 22, verse 20. He took, the Lord Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, symbolized, of course, by wine, which is shed for you, which is spilled for you. Now I think there must be a connection there. That the new covenant is like wine. And as we take the the wine, we are symbolizing how we accept that that new wine is entering into us. And we must change. And if we do not, then we will burst. And not only are we destroyed, but the wine, which represents the, the blood of Jesus will be spilt, will be shed again. Now, we therefore will be guilty of what we read in Hebrews 6 verse 6, uh, is crucifying the Son of God afresh, spilling his blood again. I remember Alfred Norris many years ago, one of the uh, few talks I heard of Alfred's live uh, before he fell asleep, he was talking about the sufferings of the risen Lord. <clears throat> and it was a most, uh, most profound talk and a most profound idea. The sufferings of the risen Lord. That, in a sense, he can be crucified afresh. Another similar idea in Galatians 2 verse 21, Paul warns us that if we go back to the law, if we go back to legal righteousness, his death can be in vain. For us, that he went through all that in vain if we continue to want to patch up our lives partly by mixing uh, his wonderful grace with our own self righteousness. And verse 38, similar idea. New wine must be, must, notice that, dia, must, 
must be put into new bottles and both are preserved and the Greek word translated preserved really means to be saved from loss or from ruin so the blood of Christ is lost it's spilled, it's shed for us and we're to imagine I suppose the burst wineskin that wouldn't change with this red wine sort of flowing away useless on the ground that is the picture of the blood of Christ shed again by us in vain because we would not change and there's a tragedy in this just as on a human level there's a tragedy that new wine has been lost because the wineskin burst and oh dear there it is just lying there on the dusty Palestinian floor and this tragedy is felt by the Lord Jesus don't think that the Lord is in heaven somehow indifferent saying well you know, if you want to accept what I've done you can accept it if you don't, well you don't and that's, uh, that's good by me but uh, over to you, it's really your choice I've done my part, now it's over to you no he is passionate about us and insofar as we fail insofar as we do not change and if we do not change ultimately that new wine will burst us and not only will we be shattered but also that new wine will, will just pour out on the floor wasted um, that is a felt loss to Jesus that is a tragedy which he and of course the father too feel very strongly so the whole thing will be a tragedy not only for us but for him and a pain to him a re-crucifixion of Jesus a shedding of his blood again a spilling of that blood yet again so then in one sense it's a very challenging uh, bit of thinking here by the Lord that we must change and if we do not then his blood will be shed in vain and spilt yet again by us but we grab hold I suppose of verse 39 where as he so often does and as God often does in the prophets there is a, a challenge to a very high level uh, of life before him and then there is his compassion and his remembering that we are dust verse 39 but no man having drunk the old wine immediately desires the new because he says the old is better and Jesus understands therefore our conservatism the difficulty that we have in, in changing so what he is about is about stretching us stretching our boundaries taking us beyond our comfort zone the very narrow kind of way that we have of, of thinking that this is what I am used to doing this is what I want to continue doing to the day of my death don't disturb my pattern don't make me sick, don't make me ill don't let me lose my job my partner, my kids my house may my car always start in the morning may everything just be ok that's what we want and that's what we keep on praying for so often but you know that's not the way of the spirit we are led onwards there's a, a bust up in the ecclesia there's a difficulty here or oh, we want our thing to be sorted out and swept under the carpet so we can carry on like we were but no 
You see, this new wine is fermenting. It's something radical. It's not something cosmetic. It's not something painless or riskless to take into our lives. But we have taken it into our lives. It has been poured into us. We have been filled with it. And we have to be new. My friend Cliff York in, uh, in Australia, I've heard him say so often and write so often, say so often, that the problem is with so many, many groups of, uh, of believers is that it's always Jesus plus. And I've heard him say it so often, I used to wonder, oh, right, Cliff, I get your point, uh, but, you know, uh, but, but now I see why Cliff keeps saying that. And he's absolutely right. They keep on and on warning us that it can't be Jesus plus. It is only Jesus. In other words, if we are saved by his imputed righteousness, so that we shall be blameless in that day, so that we shall be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, if that is the case, and if that is truly, as the Bible says it is, by grace alone, then that is all that we need. We can't take that on board plus our own bit of self-righteousness, plus our own good works. The good works are motivated by a simple desire to say thank you. Thank you that you did this. Thank you that you have saved me. It, you know, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. This idea that we, as sinners, shall be like him. Now, I know the him puts, because of the, uh, the, the meter of the music, puts the emphasis on the word like. We shall be like him. But for me, the wonderful thing is that we, that I, with all my dysfunction and weakness, shall and am, right now, like him him in, in his eyes and this is the whole point that it's in his eyes that we are counted righteous so it's a it's a hard thing to believe but you know again there is a, a sting in the tail a, a trick of the tail as we say in Latvian that uh, we can read all this and yeah it goes along in our understanding but yeah it's quite bizarre to take a new garment and cut a piece out of it uh, and, and stick it on an old garment that's got a it got a rend in it. That's bizarre. Why ever do that? Would anyone do that? No. Ah. But you would. And so would you. And so would you. And so would a whole lot of us. Because this idea of believing that I am saved by grace. I mean, this is the biggest mountain to climb. It might actually ultimately be the only mountain for us to climb in our lives. But this is the thing. That we are in Christ. That we are in truth brothers and sisters in him. Not just of Christ, but in Christ. And that's a a great theme that is there throughout the uh, New Testament and Paul's writings, that we are in Christ. That we are covered and secured in him. But do we believe it? Can you believe it? Or do you go back to Cliff's thing about, yes, but, Jesus plus, Yes, I do, but, you see, I, whatever, I'm divorced. Well, I'm not, but you you know what I'm saying. People always say, ah, yeah, but, you see, I'm this, or I'm that, or whatever. And 
we are faced in those moments with the most fundamental choice. Do you believe in the blood of Christ, in the cross of Christ, in that great salvation that is in him, in his grace, in his love? Do you believe those things? And yes. But let it be yes. I do. I believe. Not, well, yes, but. Not, yes, I hope so. But, yes, I believe. Because this is the the basis of our salvation. This is the basis of salvation by faith. By grace through faith. This simple belief in his love and his salvation. If you're so concerned about works that, well, I don't do enough. I don't uh, preach enough. I don't read the Bible enough. I don't pray enough. I don't uh, have enough spiritual thoughts. And you desperately want to do better, which we all do. Every one of us here feels that. Well, if that is your great concern, let me put it this way to you then. Trying to, as Paul says, speak after the manner of men. Put it humanly, in human terms. The way to improve is to believe that you are saved. To do what the Bible says and believe that you are saved, that you will live forever, that you will rise out of that graveyard where, where you end up and you will stand again on this earth and you will come to his throne and be clothed in, in white, white robes, be acceptable before him. And then you'll find that the, the gratitude that you have in this life, knowing that that is my future, that will motivate you far, far more powerfully than any desire to get sort of right with God now by your good deeds or your goodness of yourself. The motivation for all that good works and all the, you know, the the spirituality and self-control and battling against the flesh, etc., the motivation will come quite naturally from the belief and the knowledge that we have been clothed with the new, the new garment with the white robes of Christ's righteousness. Thank you.